Hello and welcome to episode 20 of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music gives us a reason to live and can also wreck our lives. I'm your host, James Toth. I had an overwhelming response to last episode's poll question, which was, what's the worst depiction of rock and roll in a movie or TV show? Gotta say, I was expecting at least some of you to cite the punk episode of Quincy, but I got some really great responses, and I really appreciate you all participating. Now, two of you, Phil and Zach, mentioned the famous Johnny B. Good scene in Back to the Future. I think we can all agree that this scene is dumb, but it's hard to imagine 80s cinema without it. We all love Back to the Future in spite of this problematic scene, right? But yes, excellent choice. Phil also suggests the glistening, coke-fueled, ponytailed saxophone guy in The Lost Boys, which I'd totally forgotten about. Now see, I'd probably go see that guy play. I mean, I know it's ludicrous, but I could also see that being like a real performance. Mark sent me this episode of L.A. Law, in which a couple is divorcing because he's a major deadhead, while she got off the bus a long time ago. Now, this one to me doesn't seem inaccurate. In fact, Mark and I agree there absolutely had to be a deadhead in the writer's room for this episode. I mean, there are references to Fillmore 69, Hampton, Egypt, even Watkins Glen. These are not things a non-deadhead would be using in shorthand. Now, the husband is clearly a caricature, but I actually think this one was pretty well done. I came away from this clip thinking I should watch more L.A. Law. Meg replied to the poll question with just one word. Once. Yes. Jason drew my attention to a scene in Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, from 1986, where the caricature punk rocker guy is listening to a boombox on public transit, and Kirk and Spock get the guy to turn off the offensive loud music via the Vulcan neck pinch, and everyone on the bus applauds. Now this scene is really interesting for a number of reasons, most of which I discovered this morning poking around on the internet. It seems the actor playing the punk, Kirk Thatcher, was the film's associate producer, and he pleaded with Leonard Nimoy to give him the role. Even more trivia, the song he's rocking out to in the scene is a song he recorded and wrote himself to prove to Nimoy that he was up to the task, which definitely adds another layer of intrigue to this unforgettable scene. Kirk Thatcher's other credits include having directed a handful of Muppet movies, and he was a member of George Lucas's Industrial Light and Magic team during Return of the Jedi. One commenter on the YouTube clip for the scene astutely observes that for all the passengers on the bus knew, Spock had just committed murder, and they applaud anyway. <laughs> Fantastic. Max Birch contributes the final scene of This Is 40, where Paul Rudd, who I guess plays like an A&R, I don't know, I only watched the clip, is watching Ryan Adams perform. His lady friend wife person suggests he sign him, and Rudd says, he is between labels. Let's go try to talk to him after the show. <laughs> is the rest of the movie like this? I mean, I, I like Paul Rudd, but I'm not sure I could endure a movie about him being a record label owner coming to grips with middle age or whatever, but I did just see that Graham Parker's involved in this movie too, so maybe I'll see it. Should I see this? Let me know. Matt writes, I was just listening to the High Fidelity episode of the Track Listing podcast, and it made me think of the scene where the guys first see Lisa Bonet's character performing Baby I Love Your Way at a coffee shop. It's fine, I guess, he says, but I think it rings false that Jack Black's character is into it. This is totally correct, and I was waiting for someone to mention High Fidelity, though I will concede that a lot of the record store stuff in that movie rings pretty true to my own experience. Ryan cites a film called Summer Camp Nightmare, 
where a teenage talent show features a band called the Horn Dogs performing a cover of Fear's Beef Bologna, where it appears the guitars aren't plugged in and the drums and keyboards seem to be on a different stage. He also mentions the final scene of Howard the Duck, which is another good choice. And another Back to the Future alum there, too, in uh, Leah Thompson. Ryan also advances a theory that most rock films depict the world of rock and roll as either exaggerated fantasy or a tragedy, sometimes mixing the two. And I think this is also very true. My pal J.M. Hart, a.k.a. Road Jimmy of the excellent Broke Down podcast, offers the Partridge family as a contender. That's a good one and makes me think maybe the monkeys too, a little. Uh... JM also flips the question on me and asks, what's the most accurate depiction of the life of a touring band in film or television? I think the obvious and maybe boring answer is this is Spinal Tap. I think the reason it endures is because it's full of truth. Uh, A film that has better portrayed band life, uh, in my opinion, has yet to be made. Every single band that's ever existed has been in at least a few Spinal Tap-like situations. Jerry DeSica anticipated J.M.'s question, by the way, and submitted as his entry for most accurate depiction, the 1987 film Light of Day. Interesting that this is the second movie we've discussed today that depicts Michael J. Fox playing a guitar. Getting back to the inaccurate depictions, I guess it's my turn. I'll submit for movie the 2001 abomination Rockstar, which was loosely, very loosely, based on the story of vocalist Tim Ripper Owens, who between the years 1996 and 2003 was plucked from a Judas Priest cover band to replace legendary Priest vocalist Rob Halford. There's a good story there. So who does Hollywood, in all of its infinite wisdom, cast for the lead roles in this tale of metal messiahs? Jennifer Aniston and Marky fucking Mark. I wonder which of Mark Wahlberg's two facial expressions clinched the role for him. Was it seething hostility or angry confusion? I don't even know how I came to see this film, but because I am a small man, I still get angry when I think about it. It sucks. The real tragedy is the cast included people like Jason Bonham, Jeff Pilsen of Dawkin, and Zach Wilde. So it's not like they didn't have consultants at the ready. The film was written by a Harvard-educated former soap opera star and model. The perfect guy to tell this story, right? For TV, there's a 1992 episode of Beverly Hills 90210 called Wild Horses. Brandon's girlfriend Nikki has an ex that's a cliched rocker type straight out of central casting, played with admirable smugness by David Arquette, who, if I recall correctly, spends almost the entire episode shirtless in a leather vest. Of course, of course he does. And being a musician, naturally, he's also a drunken, abusive prick. A drunken, abusive prick in a leather vest and no shirt. Anyway, so he and Brandon exchange words, and Brandon refers to him dismissively as Axel. And not a terrible little diss from our Brandon there, but Arquette's character then replies, and I quote, Axl Rose is a sellout, man. Now, let's examine this statement. First of all, Axl Rose was never sold in. Everyone knows the motherfucker wanted to be Elton John since he stepped off the bus from Indiana. What were Guns N' Roses' previous punk rock bona fides exactly? Did they tour with Jawbreaker at some point? Did they perform at some Food Not Bombs benefits I'm not aware of? Clearly this is a case of a writer out of his element, misapplying what he or she thought was something a rocker type might say, making no effort whatsoever to consider whether or not the line made any sense at all. Oh, and I'm pretty sure the guy's band, uh, called Waste Management, featured a keytar in 1992. Good heavens. Thank you to everyone who contributed. I realized the deadline came up pretty quick, so in the spirit of making it up as we go along... 
we're going to start doing the poll questions every other episode from here on out. So that gives everyone two weeks to submit. See, I post episodes on Tuesday, which means I have to record the following week's episode no later than Saturday, and it's a whole thing. So I think we should just leave a little more time for this very serious business. So I'll ask a new poll question at the end of this episode, and then you'll have till mid-next week to send me your answers, and I'll read the best answers on episode 22. And now, on to part two of our discussion of life on tour. David Berman once told me something I've never forgotten. He said if a nuclear war were to break out tomorrow, the last people on Earth to know about it would be bands on tour. Now, this isn't quite as true anymore now that we all walk around with access to a 24-hour news cycle in our pockets at all times. But when David said this, in the days before ubiquitous cell phones, it was absolutely true, at least on the evidence of my experience. As I mentioned last episode, tour is a bubble. Sure, you may pick up a newspaper at a coffee shop or a hotel lobby now and again, or hear something from a fan at the merch table about a recent celebrity death or something. But for the most part, you're disconnected and oblivious in your econoline cocoon. Let me give you a perfect example of this phenomenon, one that is very embarrassing, one in which I come off very badly, but I will tell it anyway. In the summer of 2005, my band was on a marathon tour that began in Kentucky the first week of June and ran all the way to the first week of September, and we had a two-week break in New York to record in the middle. It was late August, and we were driving through Texas. I had called my dad a few days earlier to check in, and all he could talk about was this big storm headed in our direction. Now, my dad's a bit of an alarmist and a weather watcher, and he, he lives for opportunities to caution me about potential meteorological anomalies and disasters. Anyway, so I call him, and he says, Better be careful, Johnny. Sometimes my dad calls me Johnny for some reason. There's a fucked up storm heading your way. Some of your shows might get canceled. I shared my dad's gloomy prognostication with the band, who reacted with a sort of collective shrug. Now, this squad had already braved many fucked up storms. We'd also had some insanely harrowing white-knuckle drives through blizzards, uh, up the notoriously treacherous Nascimento ferguson Road to Big Sur in a slick drizzle, and like most bands playing the odds, we'd been in several accidents. Almost anyone who's ever toured has at least one story in which they almost died. I'm just saying, we were pretty tough. So onward we went, with all the heedless arrogance and foolhardiness you'd expect from a decrepit van full of guys and girls in their early 20s, driving around the country for months at a time, playing weird music. It was raining as we drove, but nothing that looked especially apocalyptic. We showed up to a hotel about 40 miles outside New Orleans and asked for a room. I will never, ever forget the look on the face of the desk clerk at the hotel when I asked. Are you guys out of your minds? He might have said, are you guys out of your fucking minds? There isn't a vacancy within a hundred miles of here. Every room that is available is being occupied by emergency rescue workers. So there we stood in our bandanas and white denim shorts and ironic sunglasses, the very picture of obliviousness and, yes, privilege. We called our promoter but couldn't reach him. Assuming at this point the next few shows would indeed be cancelled, we still had no idea just how bad the storm was. We drove on, and as we got closer, the city of New Orleans from our vantage point on the interstate appeared to be literally smoldering. Two or three hours later, we checked into a room outside of Mississippi, I forget exactly where, where we immediately turned on the TV, where we finally came to grips with the reality of Hurricane Katrina. I have never felt like a bigger dick in my entire life. 
I guess we could have tuned the radio in the van to the local weather or something, but because of the bubble, we didn't really grasp or appreciate the gravity of the situation. The thing is, though, I love the bubble and the illusory force field it provides. It's one of the best things about Tor, and it's a thing to be protected. The bubble can also provide you with another kind of protection. When your band becomes a gang, or, to use another cliche, when the members of your band begin to feel like your siblings. You know, you're going to argue and fight with your sisters and brothers, but Lord help anyone outside the family who tries to disrespect them, right? So the guy in your band who on the previous night during soundcheck had hurled drum hardware at you in frustration will be your most ardent defender if somebody tries to fuck with you at a venue or a truck stop or wherever. Almost every band I ever founded or have otherwise led has been co-ed, and there have been far too many incidents when women in my band were cornered, treated with disrespect, and even physically assaulted. One time some creepy goblin fuck copped a cheap feel on a member of my band just as he exited the club, and the rest of us chased the guy into the parking lot. Your squad is also a united front against unscrupulous promoters, rude bouncers and sound guys, and overzealous fans. You really have to protect each other. I'm going to share with you now a trick that I have thus far only shared with other touring bands, many of whom have adopted it, but you can use it anywhere. I call it the Eugene. Now, I can't remember whether or not this was inspired by a particular episode of Seinfeld. It could have been, or it could just be a weird coincidence, but there's an early episode of Seinfeld, season one, I think, Uh, Jerry and Elaine have to attend like this dull party in Long Island with George and they make a pact that if either of them looks like they're stuck in an awkward or weird conversation with a stranger at the party, the other one will come to their rescue and to signal they're having a bad time, the rescuee taps their head. It's really funny. Anyway, the touring version is a little more involved and a little less silly because it's used more for situations that might appear dangerous rather than dull. Here's how it goes. If I see a person in my band being cornered by someone I don't know at a venue, and I don't just mean the friendly chit-chat at the merch table or the bar or whatever, I mean that thing where you can tell by observing body language that the person being talked at is maybe slowly backing away or has their arms crossed or is making some other nonverbal indication that they're uncomfortable. Anyway, if I observe this, I will go over and politely tell the stranger, I'm sorry to interrupt, and then I will turn to my bandmate and I'll say, you won't believe who's here. Eugene! There is, of course, no Eugene. Now, my cornered bandmate can react in one of two prearranged ways to my rescue attempt, which will double as a code used to surreptitiously telegraph the situation to me, the rescuer. You see, if my protective instincts are inaccurate or misplaced, and my bandmate is actually enjoying this conversation, he or she will just say, oh yeah, thanks, I saw Eugene already, he's lost weight, or something like that. Now this tells me there's nothing to worry about, and I go away. If, however, my instincts are correct, and my cornered bandmate is in fact being drained by a psychic vampire, or is feeling generally creeped out, they simply excuse themselves to go talk to our imaginary pal, the elusive Eugene. They'll say, oh shit, Eugene. Sorry, they say, turning back to the stranger, you'll have to excuse me, I haven't seen this guy in years. Now, this really only works if the venue is at least half full, of course, or at least has a green room or some other place where you can temporarily disappear once you walk away. I'm divulging all of my secrets here. If you have ever been the victim of a Eugene, I'm sorry. It's nothing personal. Sometimes it's difficult from a distance to tell friend from foe. So anyway, yeah, the Eugene. You can use any name. It doesn't have to be Eugene, but it helps to establish with your bandmates a name that isn't super common, 
So there are no weird misunderstandings if your bandmate happens to be drunk or stoned or just forgetful and says something like, John who, when you try to rescue them. That could be really awkward. The touring network as a whole tends to be made up of people who look out for each other. I've definitely been the beneficiary of a lot of generosity and kindness from other bands on tour, and I in turn try to reciprocate that goodwill whenever and however I can, because it's actually a really small world. It's a cool feeling, too, when you stop at some interstate gas station and spot another band. You see a van or sprinter at the pumps with band stickers on it, and you figure, you know, there's a pretty good chance. And then you go into the little mart, and you're browsing the chips next to a bunch of people in band t-shirts and tattoos, and you just sort of know. Sometimes you just nod, and every once in a rare while, you'll even chat. Like, where are y'all headed, you know? I remember one time I got detained on the border while I was on tour with Swans, and, uh, as, as we were walking into the little detention area, who should be sitting there but all of Swans. That was funny. I've also met other bands at the Canadian border who were being, like my own band, detained. Side note here, this is always such a farce. You look around this detention center and you see five kids in Cannibal Corpse t-shirts, a Mexican family of four, and a guy in dreadlocks. And you think, random search my ass. I've been randomly detained at border crossings for 20 years, and I have never once met a white dude in a suit in there. But I digress. In any case, the bubble is not what it once was. With cell phones and social media, you can be plugged in at all times, no matter how far you are from home. There are obvious advantages to this, but these conveniences can also tether you to a version of reality that has little to do with the reality of being on tour. When I started touring, cell phones didn't exist as we know them now. But even I had it a lot better than the people and bands who came before me, who laid the foundation. I remember feeling spoiled because I was able to print directions from MapQuest rather than relying on an atlas, and I could email promoters and clubs in advance of our arrival. Black Flag, to use just one example, had no such luxuries. They navigated around this gigantic country with maps and address books and payphones. I mean, if they stopped at a payphone to call a promoter and the promoter didn't answer... They'd have to drive a few more hours and just try again later and hope to get through. Now, I've toured pretty hard, but the early punk bands who helped establish this network would probably call me a wuss. The guys in Black Flag would definitely call me that. And I've often wondered, with no small amount of awe, how the hell bands ever toured before the internet and GPS. The fact that so many of these punk rock pilgrims were barely out of high school, a lot of them drunk or stoned half the time, and very few with managers or booking agents, all this makes their achievements all the more incredible. So every time I catch myself thinking like some bitter old man that touring bands now have become soft because of cell phones and social media and Airbnbs, I think about how I never had to book my own tour using a little more than the yellow pages in a pocket full of quarters. Someone once asked me how it was possible to tour for two months straight. And I told them that two months was the same as two days because tour brain is impervious to the tyranny of time. Or rather, Time becomes different. Days of the week become less important than days of the month, and hours become the least important of all. As you get older, the pool of musicians that are at once capable, professional, and willing to tour begins to drop dramatically. Families, jobs, and health issues begin to take priority. And for some, the bubble is just no longer tenable. I mean, it's no mystery. It's the rare middle-aged person that is willing to drop everything to sleep on the floors of strangers for three weeks and eat bad food and drink warm beer and make very little money doing it. And this is why my current band, 111 Heavy, has an average commute of 2,500 miles separating its five members and is comprised of touring veterans and lifers who've been playing and touring for a very long time. 
but none of us live in the same state, and one of us lives in another country, and it's fucking madness. Now, you could always stock your touring band with people in their late teens and 20s who are game for an adventure. I mean, there's no shortage of people like that. But musicians who are green are often, through no fault of their own, unfamiliar with the rules and codes. And this is why I've thought about writing a tour etiquette book, which would be divided into two halves, one half for bands and one half for hosts. Obviously, since the touring infrastructure has changed so much, even in the past five years, there's really no need for such a book. And anyway, I don't really relish the idea of having my legacy be that of the mismanners of indie rock. But still, consider what a book like this might contain. You could supplement the how-to portion by getting touring musicians of all stripes and all genres to share their stories. You know, worst shows, tricks of the trade, stuff like that. Now, the etiquette guide for bands on tour would be basic stuff if you were raised properly, like when you stay someplace, wash the dishes and make the beds, leave a place as nice as you found it, don't steal from the medicine cabinets, you know, fundamentals. For hosts, it'd be things like, band just drove 13 hours to play a concert that ended at 2 a.m. They absolutely do not want to attend your friend's 80s dance party after the show. They do not want to jam with you. But, you know... Sometimes people in bands do want to go to late-night 80s dance parties or jam with random strangers and hosts. I've toured with people who appear to have insatiable appetites for this kind of experience and fun, who are game for anything. These people, like the ones who are able to fall asleep in any position, are born to tour. They are bubble creatures. Thank you for listening. Next week I will continue our multi-part series on DIY touring tell you some more tour stories, including an unlikely encounter, you might even say confrontation, with prop comic Carrot Top, as well as a similar encounter with a certain famous alt-rock bassist. Later on in the season, before we wrap up the touring stories, tips on finding food and shelter on the cheap, and some of the worst shows I've ever played. Now I realize this episode's running a little long, and I do apologize for that, but we do need to get to this episode's poll question, which will be very controversial. I expect to lose some listeners during the fallout. First the question, then a few stipulations and ground rules. The question is, name at least one musical triple threat. I will explain. I got the triple threat idea from Broadway. In Broadway, a triple threat is defined as the rare performer who can act, sing, and dance with equal facility. With equal facility. This is the most important part of the question, folks. So the musical analog is, what artists in the history of recorded music could play, sing, and write with equal facility? To give you an idea of how strict these rules are, at least if I'm judging, in the five or so years I've been discussing this with people, I've only come up with four satisfying contenders. Just to belabor this point, the entry must be capable of joining a theoretical greatest band in the world and have a very holistic and comprehensive level of talent and ability across multiple disciplines. So don't say, but I love Neil Young's guitar playing. Yeah, me too. I have a Neil Young tattoo for Christ's sakes, but he wouldn't survive an audition with Earth, Wind, and Fire. Now remember, this is supposed to be fun, and obviously there are no objective truths when it comes to art and personal taste and blah blah blah, so let's not become enemies over this. We can agree to disagree if you really want Tom Petty singing for the greatest band that's ever existed. But again, I've only come up with four names. 
We're going to skip the listening log this week uh, in the interest of time. I never want these episodes to run longer than 35 or 40 minutes at the most. So we'll save those for next time. I definitely have some stuff I want you guys to hear, um, but uh, that'll wait till next episode. I'm sure you're all just have your fingers hovering over that add to cart button, just waiting with bated breath to hear what I'm going to recommend this episode. But uh, yeah, next episode for sure. You can find me on Twitter at Jimmy Jack Toth and on Patreon at patreon.com slash thetothzone. If you're not already a patron, please do consider pledging. Tiers begin at only $5 a month and give you access to exclusive home demos, regular newsletters, photos, discounts on Bandcamp, and at least four digital mixes per year, plus early access to each new episode of The Toad Zone. In other words, if you were a patron, you'd have heard this podcast three days ago. If you'd rather just email, that's cool. I have a dedicated Toth Zone email account where you can reach me. It's thetothzone at outlook.com. That's all for now. I hope everyone's doing okay. See y'all soon. This is The Toth Zone. <laughs>